0: Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman.
1: And I'm Brent Heltz. This episode, we'll be talking about the
0: short story, Whelan's Sword by Rudyard Kipling. This is the uh, first story in a cycle of short stories. This cycle is called Puck of Pooks Hill. This is a book that was originally published in 1906. And originally, we had said that we were going to cover the story Jim Church flit from this book. But as I read through the whole thing, it seemed like the framing device for this story cycle was really pretty important for its influence on Gaiman's work. And since that influences why we are here, I think it makes more sense to talk about this first story because that's when the frame is introduced. Uh, and also there's a, a small connection to the Gaiman story that we're reading next, which is uh, chivalry. Uh, these two stories will have a small connection there. So that seems helpful and interesting, useful also. But of course, right, the main reason that we are reading this story is because of A Midsummer Night's Dream. We're going to see the important connections there Right away. But before we even get into the recap, Brent, I'd just like to know what your experience with Kipling is. He certainly was not someone that you and I talked about together as kids or teenagers, but have you read much Kipling?
1: No, no, I have not read much Kipling. Um, I think that there was probably snippets that was on the syllabus for things, you know, that we read, um, as teenagers. Um, probably saw some snippets here and there, mostly of poems. I don't know that I'd ever read any short stories from him. Um, and I certainly, in college, I was focused a lot on um, Slavic writers, so uh, did not spend a lot of time on English writers and um, have not really had occasion to go back but i I'm really glad to have this excuse to to look back and, and read particularly this story but but even just opening up to um, revisiting or rather visiting for the first time his work because uh um, I
0: think I would have enjoyed reading it um, had I done so before. Yeah, he he's strangely super important, super important titan of English literature, one of, you know, easily the five most important sort of 19th century English language writers, but just was not really someone we did in high school. Uh, I don't, I don't know that I even remember reading a poem of his. I mean, I I know some of his poetry, but I think those are things I've gone to myself or, or read in college. But yeah, junior high, high school, he just was not really on our syllabus. I, I had read the Jungle Book as a kid. Did you read that? Or like maybe you read like some kind of uh, sort of adaptation of it, a sort of picture book version or something like that. Yeah,
1: I think that I probably did encounter some kind of a picture book adaptation or something of the Jungle Book, but I don't
0: have much memory of
1: it. It's not like other things that I have stuck in my head.
0: So I had read the Jungle Book, and also I had read the Just So stories. I had these in a sort of series of of uh, like classic literature, hardcover books that my, my parents would get me for like Christmas and, and my birthday, and uh, still have those. In fact, they are now in uh, my son's room. They're, they're out, actually. We've uh, uh, done some reading, really more the Just So stories. We've done some of that reading together. But mostly, Kipling has really become important to me, even though I've read more. He's done some weird fiction that I've read in, in, in anthologies. I've not sought him out for that. I've read his novel Kim that that I did seek out as an adult but uh, he's become really important to me because he's wildly influential on Neil Gaiman and Gene Wolfe right two authors that we've got dedicated <laughs> podcasts to here on the on the network and the the real Venn diagram Uh, there is The Jungle Book. Uh, We have talked before about how uh, Neil Gaiman has a sort of weird fiction children's book version of The Jungle Book. That's The Graveyard Book. Uh, So we're going to want to tackle that uh, at some point before we do The Graveyard Book, I think. But Gene Wolfe also has written a number of stories that draw on The Jungle Book. So that is something, I don't know, at some point, some way, somehow on the network, we're going to need to do a series of episodes on The Jungle Book. That might be something where you and Brandon and I all team up together to do like Three episodes on it, or something like that, because it's so influential, both to Neil Gaiman and to Gene Wolfe. I think that's going to be it's going to be super important to do something like that.
1: Yeah, and I think if we also, it probably wouldn't take much to Google and find a, find some reference that Gene Roddenberry made to um, Jungle Book at some point, <laughs> and then it'll be the full hat trick. Um, that basically, it's Clay Temple Media brought to you by
0: fans of Richard Kipling. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I wouldn't mind. And I mean, definitely Brandon and I will do some Kipling on Elder Sign, uh, our weird fiction podcast as as well, because there's some really cool, really creepy stories that he's, uh, that he's written that are right in our wheelhouse there. And I do also have like a real kids book, like a little board book for toddlers of <laughs> the Jungle Book that uh, my son and I have been reading together as well. And uh, before we get into this story here, that is very much going to be about Puck and Puck of Pooks Hill is the name of the book, and that's going to be the connection with A Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, The time between us broadcasting this episode and having broadcast A Midsummer Night's Dream is maybe a few months, but the time between recording these episodes has actually been almost a year. Uh, And so my son is now twice as old as he was when we recorded that episode. And I think when we did that episode, I said something about how he and I had been reading different kids' versions of A Midsummer Night's Dream, One of them being uh, an illustrated board book that really just has drawings of fairies and then some lines of text. Uh, But uh, just this week, almost as if like through some kind of mental osmosis while I've been preparing for this episode, all done entirely while he's been asleep, of course. uh, He has started really being into that book again, constantly taking it off the shelf. And he has learned to say Puck and he now requests actually <laughs> that I recite bits of verse from the like fairy song uh, or lines about Puck to him uh by looking at me and shouting Puck uh, often while we're eating but just also randomly throughout the day uh this is now his new favorite thing so uh, thanks Neil Gaiman <laughs> <laughs> I have to imagine
1: with illustrations of fairies that probably uh, those particular illustrations would be to the chagrin of actual Puck uh, if they do have the butterfly wings.
0: Uh, the, he does not have butterfly wings, but he is definitely cute. I mean, this is designed to appeal to children. And let me be clear, this is an amazing thing. Like the idea that my 15 month old wants me to recite Shakespeare to him. And Puck is among his first hundred words is just like delightful, uh, delightful to me. So it's 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 wonderful. But of course, yeah. the thing that really draws him, I think he does like the sound of the language and he is actually starting to say some of the words that I'm reciting to him just like over and over and over uh, again. And look, la- like t- 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 last month, it was Baba black sheep over and over again so like you know that all gets tiring after a while but this is a pretty amazing improvement on that but yeah it's the cuteness of the of the picture that i think is drawing him yeah. uh, for the most part so that's that's uh, a great service though to to have so <laughs> all right well that's uh i'm 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 at risk here of actually just hijacking the podcast and making it uh, entirely about my baby because uh, uh, that's just how it is i think i guess i, I swore i would never become that person
1: And I'm at risk of uh, trying to visualize how you would do a child's story for Macbeth um, or even Hamlet.
0: Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have not yet found one, in fact. But actually, yes, dear (laughs) listeners, if you know of a children's board book uh, adaptation in particular of Macbeth, I want to know about that. So please, please get in touch with us. But let us turn our attention to the story at hand, Wayland's Sword. This is the story of two children. Their names are Dan and Una, and they're siblings. Uh, they live in the South Downs of England. Their father has recently helped them make a, a short play out of scenes from *A Midsummer Night's Dream*, and the scenes are really only the fairy material. The the human love story is just totally excised from this version of it. And there seem to be only three characters. There's Puck, there's Nick Bottom, and then there's Titania. And Dan and Una have been performing this. All day, just over and over again, all day, three times through, because they just love it so, so much. And they've been performing it out in one of the meadows near a hill, this hill that is called Pook's Hill. And they've been using a circle of dark grass as their stage. Now, this type of grass feature, you know, it's all over the place, but this type of feature is called a fairy ring. And so they have been pretending to be fairies in a fairy ring. Also, it's Midsummer's Day, and and Kipling writes here, They were not, of course, allowed to act on Midsummer Night itself, but they went down after tea on Midsummer Eve when the shadows were growing and they took their supper with them. So they're cutting it pretty close. Like it's almost Midsummer Night when they're performing this. And of course, as you've guessed, they have cut it too close because in the exact spot where Dan had just been acting out the part of Puck, Puck himself appears He explains that they have summoned him. They've essentially performed some kind of ritual here by acting out the play in this manner. And if they had done this a few centuries ago, they would actually have a lot more fairies arriving than just Puck. And we're going to talk on that thread in a minute, but I think here's a good place to pause and talk about where we are right now, just kind of take stock of what Kipling is doing here. I adore the setup here. These kids innocently playing without realizing that there's magic in the world.
1: They're playing a story about magical creatures without really appreciating the magic that is all around them and on the land and within the land that they um, are standing on. Um, and it's kind of a great setup. And I think it's the theme that runs through a lot of particularly this whole collection of um, the Puck on Pooks Hill is uh just this idea of the – magic and the history that surrounds all of these places and all these pathways that people can find themselves on.
0: And this is a, a version of magic that is just a property of the world, right? It, it's it does not something that someone necessarily has to know they're up to or like do with a lot of agency or purpose, just to even have any knowledge of it at all. You can accidentally do magic in this, in this world, which is something I think we take for granted because that's such a feature of Neil Gaiman's work. And a lot of, of course, like subsequent fantasy, particularly urban fantasy, picks that up. But, uh, you know, I don't know that that's really how we would have described things based off of like Tolkien, for example, that sort of fantasy. So the idea that there is, you know, magic in the real world and that you can accidentally perform it, anyone can accidentally perform it if the circumstances are right. And and here there are three distinct things that have to be happening, or really four, I guess, right, that they've got to be in this very specific place, the fairy ring, on a specific day, but also a specific time of that day. And then also have to be doing something that is about fairies. Presumably it's because they're saying the names of fairies. They're saying Puck's name over and over again would be my guess, though that doesn't get spelled out for us here, but they don't know that that's possible. It just is possible because it is a feature of the world that has nothing to do with like our conception of it, uh, which is, yeah, it's just as a different type of, of magic system, or at least I think would have felt like a different type of magic system in fantastical literature at the point when this was published anyway.
1: Yeah. It kind of divorces magic from any kind of need for intent. There's nothing intentional about what the children are doing. They're not out to craft this. And Puck even goes so far as saying, if Merlin himself had helped you, you couldn't have managed better. Um, It's, it's one of those things where just the children going about what they do happen to cause kind of this evocation of magic from this environment, doing this activity on this date, that gives rise to this, which is it's because there's the specific actions that they need to do in the place at the set time. It's not that it's completely chaotic, but there's a lot of just kind of fun spontaneity to the manifestation of this magic, which is, it's great. Um, and also I think signals a lot of how magic and the world can look through certain, you know, viewpoints from ch- children's perspective in which the world is something you don't fully understand yet. So, Maybe something like this could just happen just as well as not. And you don't need to know necessarily how it would happen. It would just, it'd be something that
0: happens. Puck does not say anything about this, at least not in this story or any of the others that I, I read through in this collection. But I also think actually that from his perspective, things are much better that it's these kids and not Merlin also, that this is actually <laughs> pretty fun for him, that he's been accidentally summoned by these these two kids is going to be a lot of fun for him. At least that that was sort of my sense of sort of flipping through and kind of randomly reading some of the stories in this uh, in this collection here, the story cycle. Well, the, the next thing that we need to talk about is that Puck is going to give us some background background information about the way fairies function and the history of fairies in this speculative world that Rudyard Kipling is imagining here, inventing here. Uh, First thing to say is that although the kids are using the, the word fairy themselves, Puck does not use that word. The term he uses is people of the hills. And he explains that they're all gone, the people of the hills. They're all gone except him. And Puck is now the oldest thing in England. He was here when the people of the hills arrived, and he was here when they left a few centuries ago. Uh, left, in fact, during the reign of Elizabeth I, which is to say, hey, when Shakespeare was writing plays. And Puck also gives us uh, a list of different types of people of the hills giants, trolls, kelpies, uh, brownies, goblins, imps, pixies, nixies, gnomes, and then like there's a ton more that's like half the list. I won't do the whole thing, right? But lots of different types of people of the hills, t- different types of fairies. And since we're here really right to think about Neil Gaiman, uh, let's pause again here at this point and just talk about what Gaiman has drawn on from this bit of stuff that Kipling is doing in, in making his own fantasy adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream and, and also what things he's he's not taking from Kipling here. I mean, one thing that jumps out to me right away is simply this this list of names, right? We see a lot of these, uh, these types of, uh, different types of fairies invoked either in the dialogue, or simply the the art in this ep- or in this issue.
1: Yeah, we do. We see a wide variety of creatures, and it, it almost, you know, they're they're banded together in the issue under the descriptor of the fair folk, um, rather than the people of the hills. Um, but you almost could imagine that each one of the things we see depicted in that issue are. From a different, or different species. They're a different creature. They're a different type of thing. Um, and that they, you know, may collectively fall under one umbrella, but that you're talking about kind of, you know, a whole grouping of different things. Um, essentially, I always think of it as like almost the beginning of the monster manual list of (laughs) creatures that you've got here. Um, and we've also got the idea that they came from somewhere. Um, and that they also then returned to somewhere they've let or they've left somewhere and they haven't come back. And, and the timing of that and the leaving and the not revisiting does sync up nicely with the comic issue. Um, but the discussion of also them being an external thing that kind of enters the space of, um, is something that I think Neil kind of brings forth. It's not that they are of this world and then they left this world. It's that they are of another world that is near this one and there were strong linkages and now most of those gates have been closed.
0: Yeah, we're, we're going to get some more information about what exactly, well, maybe not exactly, but we're going to get some more information about what type of creatures the people of the hills are. and We'll, we'll want to think about really where they do actually come from. But this idea that they have left, that they left England at at the very least... Uh, on the cusp of early modernity, right as as things were changing in England, as modernity was coming in, and that that is definitely something that that Gaiman is tugging on here, a cue that he's taking here, some something else that we we've left un, unstated at this point. Though I'm, I'm sure that that listeners, even who who haven't read along and are only hearing about this story through us, have already picked up on is the fact that we're also talking about the the same location. It's the South Downs. Like this might. Be exactly the same place. This uh, one of these hills that we get in the background in the in the art in A Midsummer Night's Dream might be Pooks Hill or one of these other hills that is mentioned here, Beacon Hill. There's a couple other hills that get names here. This is taking place in the same location here, the South Downs. So, you know, uh, though we don't have anything, I think, on the record about Game Insane, I was thinking about, you know, Rudyard Kipling and what he did with Buck when I wrote this. It's very clear that this is something that was massively influential in his re-framing, retelling of A Midsummer Night's Dream. But all right, so all of this so far is really just the setup for not just this story, but for the entire book, right? The the whole short story cycle in which Puck is really going to act as the the narrator or maybe a, a guide of sorts. Most of the stories in this cycle, maybe it's even all of them, I haven't read them all yet, are stories that he is actually going to tell or use magic to show to these two kids. So at this point now we can actually get to the the title story here, the the story about Whalen's sword, and. Puck tells this story in answer to the kids' question about what the people of the hills are and why they went away, right? Questions that I think we all sort of implicitly have when we're, we're getting this sort of background information about fairies or the, or the people of the hills from Puck. And what Puck says is that they didn't all just leave at once, uh, which is, I think, really what we do see in in gaming in A Midsummer Night's Dream, but in this case they left gradually, and really because England was becoming inhospitable to them, because they were all immigrants to begin with, and what we really learn here is that they were gods. Uh, According to Puck, the the things that we call fairies were actually all the gods of people who came to England in successive waves as as immigrants, Uh, some of them in prehistory, some of them in antiquity, and some of them in the Middle Ages. But the thing about gods is that people eventually stop worshiping them. They change religions. They stop performing the rituals correctly, maybe even if they haven't changed religions and they end up doing things like replacing genuine human sacrifices or animal sacrifices with weak rituals that just pretend to do that. And That meant that the the gods had to take to living in the wild, hiding and and maybe then stealing what they wanted, uh, which I guess was actually literally sometimes people is what they wanted. And that is how they transformed from powerful gods to simply the, the, the fairies of our folklore or, you know, as Puck refers to them, the people of the hills. This is very clearly, right, an idea that Gaiman picks up and runs with, like, for sure, right? I mean, he takes this, I think, much further even than Kipling does. I mean, it's literally the exact plot of American Gods, right? And it is going to show up in Sandman 2. I'm not sure really how much of this we've actually seen just yet in the Sandman, Brent, but maybe there is a little bit of this in the appearance of Calliope and Ra in the Sandman stories that we've just read. But this is something that we're going to get more of in the future.
1: Yeah, it certainly is something we're going to get a lot more of, and we haven't seen as much mention. We've had a lot of Judeo-Christian imagery in terms of, um, Cain and Abel and in terms of Lucifer and the idea of, and the idea of hell altogether. But we, we don't have as much of other kind of pantheons in the way that we will in the near future. But this idea of the relationship between the gods who have all of these powers when they first come to a place, but then the fact that they're reliant on kind of the actions and beliefs of humans in regards to them to kind of maintain their level of kind of power and will. I think certainly it's something that plays out a lot as you, as you mentioned, that's essentially a lot of the plot of American gods, but it's an interesting idea kind of thrown out here. Um, Kind of the powers of belief, um, and then actually the idea of that manifesting in some way and that the need for sacrifices to them in specific altars and temples and that all of those kind of trappings of, you know, an organized manifestation of faith result in a stronger manifestation for the gods themselves
0: is an interesting one. I think diminish is probably the word that we're we're looking for here right that they they sort of just diminish in their powers when people aren't worshipping them right that they that's actually where they get a lot of their sort of numinousness from their sort of supernatural powers come from this though it is also maybe going to be clear in this story that, that that you know not all of it comes from that and and that's actually really sort of what the the drama of the story of Wayland that we're going to that we're going to get here and and you know Wayland when he shows up in this story Wayland is a god of some people who conquered England and Puck was there when it happened he was standing on one of the hills near here really is Beacon Hill when he saw smoke in the distance and and went to check it out and what he sees is a band of pirates burning a village and Wayland was there he saw Puck watching and he actually sings to him about how he's going to conquer England and there would be altars to him everywhere And Puck, not really sure why, said, Smith of the gods, the time comes when I shall meet you plying your trade for hire by the wayside. And this story is going to be the story of how that sort of premonition actually comes true. But before we get to that, a few words about Weland. Uh, Weland is not someone Kipling has made up. In fact, he's he's going to show up in our next episode as well. That's Gaiman's short story, chivalry. Weland is the blacksmith god in ancient and medieval Germanic religions. We mostly know about him from the the prose Edda, which is in in Norse and is from the the late Middle ages. But he does also show up in quite a lot actually of, of Anglo-Saxon literature. and he's frequently depicted in relief sculptures from Anglo-Saxon England. This seems to be one of the one of the places in the Germanic-speaking world in uh, the Middle Ages, where he was more important than uh, than some other places, though that may actually just be a sort of accident of survival. But at any rate, uh, the thing we should really say about Wayland is that he's still an incredibly minor part of either of these story cycles—the the Edda the and then the, the Anglo-Saxon material—and not really at all like what Kipling is about to show us. I will say, but Puck says that Wayland's cult did spread throughout England, and he was much worshipped. But Puck just ignored him for a thousand years or so before checking in on him. And when he did check in on him again, he found that although people still were worshiping Wayland, they had stopped making real human sacrifices to him. And so Wayland was still there, but he was not looking very well at this point. And then Puck checks out, but then he checks in again a few centuries later. And now Wayland's temple is completely gone. It's been replaced by a Christian church. And at this point, there's actually no sign of Wayland at all. And also, hey, n- none of the other people of the hills know anything about what had happened to him. We'll pick up there in a, in a minute, but I'm really interested here in how Kipling is playing with both history and mythology. He's telling the kids here a story about England's past that clearly cannot actually have taken place in England's past. And it it strikes me that this is maybe not all that dissimilar to actually what Tolkien does with Middle Earth, and and really just you know gets something he gets started on about two decades after the the publication of this, and so you know potentially this is actually something Tolkien read as a kid, and this might be something that's rattling around in his mind as he's inventing Middle Earth himself as a as a, a young as a young man, uh, which I find really interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean it's the idea of Puck is telling a story, which in some ways, I mean it's not factually accurate, but in some ways tries to capture the spirit of the idea of kind of the successive waves of invasion and changes in um, the practice and faith of the people um, who continue to live in this land, um, either uh, the new populations that are immigrating in or the old populations who are adjusting to the incorporation of the customs of these new immigrants. Uh, And I like particularly the depiction of the, uh the wayland sacrifice when it becomes something that is purely symbolic and that puck says he sees wayland in the crowd and you know he clearly needs the nourishment that he would get from <laughs> the advantage if they actually did kill a man and then kill a horse um as they would have in the past as, as as puck tells it um but here they just symbolically do it and it's essentially like um you know going up to someone who's starving and, and like showing them food, but then not giving them more than like a single pea of it, or something. Um, or, you know, someone who is lost in the desert and is very thirsty, and it's just like, well, here is one drop of water. Um, even though there's a gallon that we symbolically are going to give you, um, but we're we're actually not giving you that full gallon. Is kind of how the imagery works in my head.
0: Yeah, we get the sense that he's really like malnourished. That was sort of the the image the picture of of Wayland that I, I got as as well which is really interesting and and we don't get anything more about how this works the other way right like it's so it's very clear that the actual worship of these gods is sustaining them in in some, you know, nourishing, nourishing way, this sort of like psychic nourishment. Why, you know, it has to be this particular ritual, right? Like why transforming the ritual diminishes or dilutes that nourishment is not, not explained here. It's not clear. Uh, And it might actually be that this is just like how the magic works in this world, that the actual thing that you're doing really matters, but it also might simply be, and I think this is actually more likely the case, and maybe I'll just, you know, ask you this as a question, Brent. Do you think it is actually just that the ritual, like the components of the ritual, like the actions that you're taking are making some kind of magic in the world that feeds the gods? Or is it actually about the level of devotion, right? That it is a lot more devotion to a god if you're actually like killing someone in your community, or someone in your family or a horse that you need really or could use anyway for your farm or something like that. Do you think it's about the, 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 just the, the motions of the ritual and that they've changed those up. And so something is being done wrong, like, you know, using the wrong word in a spell or something like that. Or do you think it's actually just about like the fervor of the devotion?
1: I mean, my read on it is that it is the fervor of the devotion and that not being willing to actually give up a member of the community And give up, you know, a horse, which, you know, it's not depicted that, you know, this is a lame horse or anything that like, but to actually give up, you know, the beast of burden, you know, perhaps in its prime, perhaps not. But it's still like that is a level of devotion that just kind of somehow transits to more power for nourishment for the gods. And I think in particular, it's interesting to me, and I mean, it's helpful for where this uh, story goes, which you know, spoiler. Um, Wayland's sword, um, but the fact that Wayland Smith as the a blacksmith. It, when we see depictions of gods um, in all kinds of kind of pantheons and mythologies throughout the world, whenever you've got kind of a blacksmith figure, you know these tend to be the gods that are. Um, often not central figures, but they were regarded of as being a lot more physically tough and resilient compared to many other gods in the pantheon, um, partially because of the amount of physical labor, um, involved in blacksmithing, in smithing, the exposure that you have to, uh, particularly if you're crafting in metal, like to that level of heat, Um, and so like the level of, you know, in D and D terms like constitution required here, right? (laughs) Is pretty high. So it's I think it's all the more interesting to have it be this depiction of the malnourished god was, you know, a a god of the Smith, um of smithing before, um, just because it's it's that much starker. I am visually seeing, you know, um, you know, you've got someone who looks like, you know, the rock. Right. Uh Dwayne Johnson, <laughs> you know, and then it like ends up being it's it's kind of like the the beginning of the Captain America movie, but in reverse, right? Where you start with like a really tough person um who looks like Chris Evans and then you have a CGI scrawny Chris Evans at the end of it, right?
0: Right, right. I, I actually, because I was envisioning Jason Momoa more than the Rock, but uh, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> so they're basically the same thing. I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, that, this raises another question as well, Brent, because something that that we notice about this story so far, and really all of the information that we get, we don't actually see Wayland here, Wayland Smith, in any kind of pantheon. The, like in this story, he is he is a blacksmith. Uh, we're going to get to that, but he's not the blacksmith of the gods or the smith of the gods. That don't really get here. We don't see him being in a pantheon. How he's presented is that he is the God of the specific people is this group of people who conquer England and that he goes with them to conquer England. And somehow it seems like as anyway, his presence there helps them conquer England. But other than that, we don't really see what people are getting from him in return. Like what is he actually, you know, if he needs them, to sustain some of his his power, what is he doing with his power for them like why what what would compel them, do you think, actually to make human sacrifices and horse sacrifices in the first place and and maybe what has caused them to to stop? We don't know, but what do you think, Brent?
1: yeah, I mean, we don't know. um I think you know as a Smith, I think that's if there's a belief that there is something that is causing them to have better you know, weapons, particularly when it comes to conquering, then it, you know, then they might be thinking whoever keeps their sword, you know, staying sharp and not breaking um, and that it is tough enough to cut through, you know, whatever kind of armor um, or clothing the people they're cutting down or wearing. Um, And that, you know, if you're trying to excuse why it is like that sword is better and that sword is, you know you know, broke or didn't keep its sharpness Um, or even, you know, if you're clattering weapon to weapon that that spear stayed better longer than you might decide that there is some kind of causal link with someone, you know, suggesting some kind of homage or performing some kind of a sacrifice is, is my guess of kind of how that's manifesting. But you're right that he's not presented as part of a pantheon. Um, And it kind of comes across like, individual or small groups of people bring aspects of these gods with them as they invaded, which is very much kind of things how things kind of play out a little bit in American gods too, in which sometimes there are pantheons, but it's more just kind of parts of pantheons that appear. And so it's, if there's a memory of a specific God, then that God may manifest or root in, in American, American gods or in England here in a way that maybe the whole pantheon doesn't come because we don't, particularly pre-written language. No one's like bringing their bullfinch's guide to mythology with them. So like, (laughs) okay, let's go through the list as we do the sacrifice. It's just like, no, maybe someone had some kind of trinket or in this case, maybe someone had the sword or the spear that they used when they showed up on the boat and they cut people down and they invaded with it. And so that, is the kind of physical thing that reminds them and has them think of and then provide sacrifices to a smith.
0: This is how this really actually works in in so many of the the ancient religions of the, the Mediterranean and the the Near East and, and and possibly other other places in Europe as well is well a couple of things one of them being that uh, although later in in literature when these things start to really get codified, like as writing advances, there is a kind of pantheon in, say, like ancient Sumerian religions, uh, ancient Greek religion as well, that we get these kind of pantheons, but that they they really clearly start out as gods of places. And so if you live in X place, you worship X god, and that's how that functions. And that seems to be how Wayland is functioning here. So Kipling is maybe really kind of just thinking anthropologically here and kind of going back to kind of before uh, all of the, the the literature, the poems and songs and, and so on that uh, Bullfinch and others have have drawn on to, to make their you know their handbooks and, and so on. But the other aspect of this, this idea of sort of bringing something right is that in antiquity, these gods had a, a sort of an object that was them that, that resided in the, the temple, the main temple to them in whatever their, their main place. Is so like in Athens, this would be an object that actually is Athena in the city of Athens, and and really actually is that that god, right? A, a kind of avatar of some sort, but also just like is that god? And so, if you want to migrate as a people, and this is something people do, people do migrate, and in antiquity, people would migrate sort of on mass from time to time to respond to environmental crises or or military crises and so on that. You would take that object with you, and and that for you was bringing your god along with you. Now we don't actually get an object invoked in this story, but you know that might really be what Kipling has in mind—is something exactly like that. That these these people who you know kind of seem like Vikings—we'll talk about that in a in a minute—are on the move. Like you know, why why are they conquering England? Well, maybe they can't stay where they they've been living anymore and so they're moving they're looking for a new place to stay and that means displacing somebody else or conquering somebody else and they have brought their god with them the object and possibly that's actually all they see as an object but because Puck is also a sort of numinous being he actually sees that as a person in ways that maybe the actual people there don't we don't get any information in the story about Wayland really actually interacting with people in that moment, it's just that he and Puck see each other and kind of like taunt each other.
1: I mean, we do get later where Wayland throws down his blacksmithing tools and that those are then you know taken up by the monastery um, and placed somewhere. But that's not presented to us as – and then Wayland resided in the monastery. It's no, no, then Wayland is gone and the tools are just there as a memory of the fact that Wayland had been here at some point.
0: Yeah, let's let's get to that part of the story now, which is actually really the story that Puck is gonna <laughs> tell, like an actual story with a with a plot. Everything up to this point has actually just been like backstory and, and preamble. But a few centuries after all of this, Puck is just hanging around this area and he discovers that there's a place called Wayland's Ford. And Puck checks it out. He sees a farmer there leave a a little offering for Wayland Smith to come and put a shoe on his horse. And Puck hangs around. He waits. And Wayland shows up and he does it. He he puts a shoe on this this farmer's horse. But Wayland is not looking well. And he, he explains that this is how he makes a living now. And he can't even get back to whatever fantastical place he originally came from because of some sort of Curse. He, he can't be free until some human truly wishes him well. And now, this farmer, he's just put a shoe on this farmer's horse, but this farmer is not grateful. He has paid Wayland, not very much, but he's paid Wayland, but he doesn't offer his thanks. And so Puck messes with this farmer. This is now finally where we get Puck being mischievous, being Puck, right? Puck is invisible. He he takes the reins of this horse and, and walks the horse around in circles, which super frustrates the farmer who is riding him. And they all run into a, a young monk who gets the story from the farmer about what's going on here. And this young monk is appalled to learn that the farmer did not bother to thank Wayland. And so they head back to Wayland's Ford where now the monk compels the farmer to say thanks and Wayland appears at this moment and the the monk then offers some real genuine gratitude for all the things that Wayland has made people over the years and this gratitude this genuine act of gratitude this frees Wayland to leave But before he goes, he wants to give a present to this monk. So he has Puck help him set up a real smithy. And then he makes a magical sword for the monk, which they leave for the monk while he's sleeping in the monastery. Like they break into the monastery, (laughs) sort of like burglar type of situation, and like leave the sword with this monk that I thought was super fun. But then he also, as you said, Brent, he drops his smithing tools in the monastery. And he does this very loudly at like the entrance of the monastery. And he says goodbye to Puck, and he disappears. And that is really it for Wayland. But the the monk, his name is Hugh. Monk, the monk Hugh is kindly dismissed from the monastery with his new sword. But the abbot of the monastery, the head of the monastery, keeps keeps these tools. He keeps Wayland's tools. He puts them at the altar because even though Wayland was a heathen, he made a gift to the church, and he performed services for people while he was here. And that is where the story ends. There's a bit of dialogue after Puck finishes, but that's really just serving as the uh, transition to the next story that's really part of the frame. And, you know, right, this this story within the story, this really became very quickly became a morality tale about a miserly farmer and also a bellicose monk and and maybe really a story about what it means to be a, a good Christian right is it the the claim to be a Christian is it identifying as a Christian or is it actually doing uh, performing the acts that Christians are meant to perform valuing the things Christians are are meant to to value is really ends up being the plot of the story or the theme of the story rather
1: although i also took as a theme that uh, kipling does not like farmers
0: um
1: <laughs> Because we have some uh, pretty um, unsavory depictions of this particular farmer not thanking for the work, um, but then we have the further statement when Puck is talking to Wayland and about Wayland saying that uh, farmers are um, uncommon uh, cold and sour. But yeah, it's very much is a tale of you know at least saying thank you, which. Um, you know, when someone renders some service to you, even if you've paid, you know, what you think is the agreed upon price, um, the implication also is that the price was, uh, should have perhaps been more that the farmer should have paid uh, more for the shoeing of the horse because um, the quality of the work was so good. Um, but even if, you know, the agreed upon economic price is you know, what the market should be rendering there, um, the idea that you should take the extra step and think about, you know, thanking a human being for what they do and kind of acknowledging the person, which, you know, in some ways it's, it's if we've gone from Wayland Smith being someone who in the day would have had sacrifices of, of men and horses to him to feeling starved by the idea that they just cut a, a couple hairs off a man's head, um, uh, to the idea that now no you just want someone to acknowledge that you did something with a mere thanks um and that that is really the only nourishment left and that would be enough to allow him to be escaped
0: yeah, I mean, this is just begging for uh, you know a lot of metaphysical questions to be answered, right? Like, how does how does any of this work? W- what is the source of the the nourishment? Where's the place that are, he's from, and why is it better to go back to that place? Is there some other form of nourishment that he's going to get in that place, or they don't need this type of nourishment in that place? They only need that here, whether here means England or you know, like Earth or the mortal realm or whatever, none of that is is clear in this story at all, right? Like that's that's not what Kipling is doing. Kipling is not interested in that kind of that kind of world building. But of course, right, Neil Gaiman is. And so we can see even just where so much of what Neil Gaiman does, and maybe most especially in American Gods, but but we're gonna get some of this in the Sandman and and some other short stories as well, where a lot of the impetus for these is actually, I think, Gaiman asking those questions about this story and setting out to answer them. And this was really cool to read and and to see the germination, or at least a potential germination, for so much of what I really love about Neil Gaiman's work.
1: Now, it's not clear to me exactly what, um, and maybe I'm just not recalling, but why Wayland is stuck there? Because we're told that the stanksa lets him be released, and he's able to leave. And, you know, we have Puck kind of telling him that this is what's going to become of him. I guess my question for you, Glenn, is did Puck curse Waylon Smith? Because when Puck meets, you know, Waylon way back in the day, you know, he tells him the time comes when I shall meet you plying your trade for hire by the wayside. And then, you know, Waylon was really upset about that. And then Puck checks in a couple times and sees him get worse and worse. And then we're left to the point where he's an old, white-bearded, bent old blacksmith who's trying to, you know, do this for – work for a penny. And then, you know, Puck says, well, you ought to know – or he says to Puck, you ought to know you foretold it, old thing. I'm shooing horses for hire. I'm not even Waylon now. They call me or
0: Waylon Smith. Right. I mean, this seems to suggest that maybe it wasn't just a foretelling, but that it was a type of curse. It's, it's a few paragraphs down on that same page that we actually get the line that tells us then uh, you know, that he is stuck here. But this is all he says. You may remember that I was not a gentle God in my day and my time and my power. I shall never be released till some human being truly wishes me well. And they, I guess that's linked with his lack of gentleness, but yeah. we don't know what the mechanism is there. He doesn't spell that out for us. So I don't think it's Puck who did that. I think Puck probably really did just foretell this, but yeah, Kipling is, is that's that's not what, you know, he's interested in, in this, in this story. That doesn't, matter all that matters is that hey this is the setup and we're going to get this little you know morality play about a you know a farmer and a horse and uh there's you know a bellicose monk and so on and that's it that's all the the that's all that the setup is so we're left wondering what are the conditions here i mean i said curse you know when i was kind of going over it in the the, the recap but like that's not a word that's actually used here. So this might actually simply, you know, curse, I think requires some kind of agency from somebody like doing the cursing, but this might actually just be part of the like physical properties of the world, the magical properties of the world, that if you behave in this way as a God, then like this happens to you, you know, what other conditions might be required to make that happen is unclear, but yeah, it might just be part of what the rules are that because he was maybe kind of a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to people, while he was a god, he is now uh, he's now trapped here until someone treats him like he's not a jerk. I guess maybe is, is how that's supposed to supposed to work. But yeah, totally unclear.
1: Yeah, it, it's a little bit unclear to me. And then I mean, I guess in if the cosmology we're supposed to take from this is that either throughout all time or at least in the current period of telling the story where Puck meets Una and Dan. Um, you know Christianity is reigning supreme, at least in this kingdom. Then the idea of, you know, creatures needing to represent good kind of Christian values, um, which you know uh, Novus Hugh tries to to convey to the farmer. Um, then it's the idea that also past indiscretions, you know, or sins of Wayland's past are what are holding him in place. Um, but I'm not sure if that's what's meant or not. It may not really matter, but I'm just trying to think, you know, what is the cosmology we have represented here? And then, you know, is there some kind of then greater underlying cosmic force that is keeping Wayland as he is? And if he waits out enough time, will just a cycle maybe spin? If Or if Christianity weren't the dominant thing, you know, universally or in this part of England, would maybe the rules be different? Or are the rules set because – everyone does eventually maybe reap what they sow. And so the fact that he was not a gentle God way back when means he already set himself on this path where at some point he would essentially,
0: you know, be in a what we're supposed to take, I think, is a long suffering state. I do think it's also important to to think about where he's from and where he's going back to is in the information that we get on that. Uh, we're in, this is the, the dialogue. Puck says, isn't there any way for you to get back to Valhalla or wherever you come from? And then we, when we get the explanation about what's happening here and he says, I shall never be released. Right. So, so we can take up the question of like, so we can take up this issue of Valhalla in a second, but what this really is, is indicating here is that he is stuck. He is stuck in this place, which might actually even mean just this very small region in England at this point, might mean England, might mean, again, just like the realm of mortals. But it is not that he can't get into Valhalla. It's not like those doors are locked. Against him, or some reason, it's that he is trapped here, right? So, but that is at least one sort of metaphysical thing that we can glean from the the vocabulary here. But that's really about that's really about it. But what do you make about this idea that he maybe came from Valhalla, or you know, maybe somewhere else? He never never weighs in on that. What do you think about that?
1: Some of that maybe is even just we're limited to our narrator of the story is Puck. We're we're limited to Puck's understanding of things, and since Puck didn't come from somewhere else. Really himself, he just kind of has been. He's very much depicted as a creature that you know, kind of maybe spontaneously, just is in England. Yeah, he's the Tom Bombadil of this story. <laughs> yeah, he's the Tom Bombadil of the story. So, um, the ring would be safe with him, but he'd probably forget <laughs> but where it is. Don't he left do it. it. <laughs> um, but uh he may not frankly care where people come from which could be some of also the his telling of his of the history of you know invaders and stuff over time and how it maybe doesn't sync with what exactly did historically happen in the record is it puck it's not important for the story and puck doesn't care about the details so valhalla or wherever is kind of you know a dismissive way to perhaps to refer <laughs> yeah. to someone who's just like look i know somewhere east of here Valhalla or, I don't know, <laughs> some German place, whatever. Um, so, I'm not sure if, if that's, you know, kind of one way to take of it. But I, I I hear a lot of it in kind of Puck's voice of just, frankly, there's some details he cares a lot about. Um, and there are some details that, eh, whatever. Um, which also manifest in how he explains the story. Um, so, uh, and maybe it helps also then that his audience in this case are two children. So, they... Uh, They have questions. They certainly do have questions. It's not that children don't ask questions because they do. But they ask different questions than you or I would have
0: because we'd be like, wait a minute. So what specifically is the mechanism by which (laughs) – right this is why puck did not want to show up for merlin he's really grateful this is kids and not merlin or us uh yeah (laughs) i would like i would read that bit of fan fiction though if someone out there wants to write a story about puck appearing to me and brent i would read that story (laughs) but what do you make of the valhalla or wherever you are from bit well i'm really interested in the idea that you know valhalla right this this I guess we'll just say like abode of the of the the, the gods, these sort of Germanic gods. It's maybe not quite right, but we can say that. And uh, the idea that right there is some other realm. <laughs> the idea that there is some other realm besides Earth that Wayland is is from originally and and can go back there. And so the idea that there there are these other you know, realms, other dimensions, other worlds where these supernatural beings uh, reside sort of more permanently, maybe are generated there. Like that's where they're, they're born or, you know, generated in some way and then can come to earth. How or why is maybe not clear, but like that seems to be, you know, to the place where Wayland is the Smith of the gods. But then here on earth, he actually was just like a serious business, supernatural being who had people worshiping him and was living in a different way right because being blacksmith of the gods is like not actually a good job you're just working for other people who are more powerful than you and as you said earlier, Brent, that these gods tend to um, have high constitutions. They also tend to be pretty <laughs> like like maltreated, the blacksmith gods. Yeah. Uh, Hephaestus has is, is been lamed, although he's also having an affair with Aphrodite. So I don't know, maybe things are working out for him. But they tend to be maltreated in some way. But here, life seems to be really awesome for him. And maybe that's the incentive to, to want to come to Earth and to try to stay if you can. Though now it seems like things are going to be better for him if he goes back to Valhalla. Though I wonder what the sequel to this story is from his perspective.
1: And then I'm also trying to understand, like, Puck is somewhat associated with the people of the hill. But he also explicitly says, you know, that he um, he saw them come to Old England and that, you know, Puck himself came into England with oak, ash, and thorn. And when oak, ash, and thorn are gone, I shall go too. As if Puck is just – A manifestation of the flora of England?
0: (laughs) Yeah, or at least the the arboreal (laughs) inhabitants of England. Absolutely. I mean, I I, I wasn't joking. I mean, I was joking, but I wasn't joking when I invoked Tom Bombadil. I mean, Tom Bombadil is eldest, and then goes around the very this very small region of uh, of middle earth right the old forest and sings the song to all of the yeah the the, the flora <laughs> all of the plants in in this region and knows all their names and he's actually married to the river's daughter <laughs> right Is sort of like manifestation of the river the, the daughter of this manifestation of the river and yeah but puck here basically is exactly that he says i am eldest more or less as i'm the oldest thing in england so it doesn't quite say i am eldest and then yeah, invokes these trees and says that he'll be here so long as they are here, and also says he makes sure he plants new ones every year so that he'll always be able to be here. So yeah, he he very much like how Tom Bombadil reads in The Lord of the Rings seems to be uh, the like manifestation of really kind of the 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 spirit of the land it, itself and the things that that grow there and there's a, so there's a real sort of like nationalist romanticism here and i don't really know if tolkien actually knew this work and drew on it so much as maybe he and kipling are kind of both drawing on on sort of earlier traditions of you know of these types of ideas of like the specialness of the land of of england and how that manifests in these folk stories and so on
1: and i think here glenn it might be helpful for us to mention um this story wylan's sword or wylan's sword um It, it usually appears accompanied by two poems, a puck song and uh, a tree song is the second one. Um, and they, the puck song, you know, very much is a very short poem about how special a place England is, uh, and, that there's all this history below your feet um of all these successive people who have you know come uh, usually invaders but um you know who have come and lived and fallen in these places um and then the tree song is also then somewhat kind of about the you know the oak and ash and thorn um kind of specialness of of the place um and so very much I kind of read this you know setting up the story of you know, England being its own kind of special place, and I think in in the Western canon, we have a lot of focus on when we talk about mythologies, um, talking about particularly Greco-Roman or Greek and Roman kind of pantheons and the mythologies and the stories of those things, and certainly you know going back to uh, the Odyssey and the Iliad. Um, you know, we've got stories of that, and you know, there's some. Work that is put into talking about things that are more from the Middle East when we look at history in the way that things are taught to us. But I feel like a lot of when we talk about mythology, we focus on kind of Mediterranean mythology. And this very much sets it up as, you know, well, let's talk about the special magic of the place where you, if you're an English reader are, or, you know, in, by which I don't mean someone who's reading it in English, but someone who lives in England uh, to understand the magic and specialness of the place where you live and that there's some magic to that area um, as well as, you know, all of the history that precedes you.
0: I I think that's exactly right. And that, that really was what I meant earlier when I invoked Tolkien the the first time. I didn't know how much I was going to want to talk about Tolkien this episode though. I should have known, right? But Tolkien, when he started inventing Middle-earth, was really playing around with the idea of inventing a mythology for England, because England should have one. England should have a mythology on the order of Greek mythology, or Egyptian mythology, or or Norse mythology, and and did really, but it's just, it's lost. We don't have, uh, it was not a great writing culture, the Anglo-Saxon, right? Meaning, you know, that's where England comes from. So he's not thinking about Britain, he is thinking about England uh, in this very historical sense as well, right? But then we just don't have nearly as much writing as as we have from other places, and the oral tradition is not necessarily there. And so he's kind of filling in the blanks there and, and inventing this mythology for, for England is how Middle-earth gets, gets started. The ideas of, uh, of the elves that he invents and so on are, are wrapped up in that. But that seems to be exactly the impulse that Kipling has here, too, is... There is a mythology of England and we can see it. We can see glimpses of it in some of the folktales that people tell about fairies in, you know, this place and that place, that local place and so on in in England. And let's piece that together here. And he, he takes his cue from... Shakespeare from A Midsummer Night's Dream, where Puck does invoke oak, ash, and thorn in some of his lines, and and wants to connect Puck's power, you know, to that, and 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 you know, also then of course, right, the power of Oberon and, and Titania as as well. But we don't see that in in this story. But yeah, that's clearly the same thing that Kipling is doing, and I imagine that other people were doing it as well. But I don't really. I don't really know this period of English literature well enough to know who else was doing it. And maybe it is only Kipling and Tolkien, but I imagine not. I imagine other people are interested in this uh, in this idea as well, because it's not something that's only happening in England. People all over uh, Europe in particular are doing this. This is, this is really kind of part of the, the nationalism movement that gets started in the 18th century and then really comes to fruition in the 19th century as this really kind of new uh, cosmology, new belief system about who people are, about what identities they have and what are the bonds that they have with each other uh, that are requiring people actually to invent mythologies for nationalities that don't have them. England is one that's missing one. Uh, Finland uh, goes through this as well. This is the same impulse that uh, leads to the collection of uh, folktales by like the Grimm brothers and and many, many others uh, throughout Europe in the the 19th century. Uh, But yeah, I think mythology for England is exactly what Kipling is up to, at least in this story. Juxtaposing just briefly
1: how Puck is in this story to the Puck that we see in um, Sandman. Um, he's a lot more particularly in how he's visually depicted in the comic um, with kind of his uh, looks like, you know, the kind of teeth that you'd you'd be afraid of him going ahead and eating the maybe small children. Um, <laughs> while here we have him manifesting in a way, which is more kind of playful. Uh, you had mentioned earlier the idea that, um, Puck may be really glad that is these two children who have inadvertently kind of called him forth and broken the hill versus if Merlin had done it. Um, I'm wondering if Puck, the way he manifesting is maybe if we, if, if we treat this as the same character, right? So if we assume this is the exact same character, which I think a lot of the way that Neil Gaiman likes to construct characters in Sandman is the idea that Um, all of everything you've read in the past about this thing is also maybe true, if not fact, right? So if we seem that this is the puck and that is puck and they are all the same puck is puck partially reflection on who puck interacts with. So the fact that puck is interacting with kind of more adult grown up and in, you know, in dreams case, brooding dream means that puck is going to be brooding and maybe a little more villainous. Um And something to be feared Um versus his interacting with the children in which it's just like he manifests as something that's kind of a little bit more playful. He doesn't – we're not at, at any point meant to feel that the children are in danger interacting with Puck in the story in the way that I feel that Puck in the Sandman comic, if we saw him next to children, we would be immediately worried for that child
0: there are some, I think, really important differences in Kipling's Puck and and Gaiman's Puck. So they both have the same backstory, which is that uh, they've been at least hanging around with fairies. Uh, For Gaiman, Puck is a fairy here. That's not true, Uh, or at least in Puck's conception of it, right? I think an outsider might might actually just lump Puck in with these people (laughs) of the hills here, but from Puck's perspective, not the case. But they're both still here and they're the last ones here. But in Gaiman's conception of this, this does seem to happen kind of all at once and Puck chooses to stay behind because he wants to make mischief, right? And that's not what happens here. Here, it's simply that Puck doesn't have anywhere else to go. This is actually where he's from. All the other fairies, all the other people of the hills had someplace else to go. And so they left and they they just left because they weren't being worshipped here anymore. So they went someplace else. But, you know, for Puck, there is no place else to go. So, The sense here is that actually Puck is a little bit bored and then he's like, kind of like, what was he doing just before this? Right. Like, what was he up to? Just planting trees, I guess, which that maybe that's fun, but uh, maybe not for centuries and centuries. And so now he's getting to entertain these children. And this might actually in some ways be the worship of Puck, right? Where like Mm. Wayland requires people to make human sacrifices and horse sacrifices to him to get power. Mm -hmm. But maybe Puck needs people to listen to his stories, Uh, but they have to invoke him for that. Right. And maybe that's what's happening here. So now this is really like actually great for him. I imagine this will come up. Like if we, you know, if we were to read further into the story cycle that we would get, in the, the sort of the glue between the, the stories that Puck is going to tell or show these kids that we might get more of that, but that would be, that would be kind of my guess there, but yeah, you're, you're definitely right, right? There is, there's a difference in tone and tenor between what Kipling is doing here and what, what Gaiman takes up. And of course, you know, Gaiman is, as we've talked about, right? Sandman gets its start as a, a type of horror comic. And so it has to have that dark tinge to it. Well, I think now that we've uh, we've brought it full circle back to, to Gaiman and thinking about the differences between what Gaiman and Kipling are both doing with this character, and since we're also thinking about, hey, let's read some more of these in the future, which, hey, if that's something you are interested in, listeners, let us know, uh, because there's so much, of course, that we could do episodes on uh, in these interludes between volumes of The, the Sandman. Uh, we'd love to know what you'd be interested in us doing. But I think that has really brought us to the end of this episode. So that is going to do it. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz. You can find
1: us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And while you're there, head on over to the Clay Temple Forums or our subreddit and let us know what you thought about Uh, Wayland's sword or any of the rest of puck of pook's hill Uh, also any other depictions of puck um, outside of the kipling text or um midsummer night's dream either by shakespeare or um, the neil gaiman comic are there other particular depictions of puck that uh glenn and i should uh, revisit or visit for the first time uh, whether in literature or um on a screen small
0: or large Um, love to hear about that Yes. And as I said at the top of the show, if you do know of a board book version of Macbeth <laughs> that would be suitable for a, you know, one and a half year old, uh, please, I need that. We both need that. You'd be doing us a great service. And hey, while you're on the internet, we hope you'll check us out on patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media. Your support there keeps the the show, all of our shows on the air. Also gives you access to all sorts of bonus episodes from across the network. This includes one that Brent and I did recently on Neil Gaiman's Sherlock Holmes story, The Case of Death and Honey, which was just fantastic. I really love that story. That was so fun to do. Next time, we are going to be back with a brief return to The Sandman. We're going to be talking about the audiobook, the the radio play adaptation of the first two volumes of The Sandman, Preludes and Nocturnes and The Doll's House, because, of course, we read and did our episodes on uh, both of those volumes before this had come out. So we weren't able to talk about it, uh, talk about these adaptations in those wrap up episodes. So they're going to get a special episode all on their own. And that's what we will be back with on March 10th. And until then, pleasant dreams.